中华民国第十六任总统副总统。I want to thank the Taiwanese people for writing a new chapter in our democracy. The people of Taiwan have spoken, and the authorities in mainland China very much dislike what they've said. We are telling the international community that between democracy and authoritarianism, we will stand on the side of democracy. The Taiwanese people have successfully resisted efforts from external forces to influence this election. The man the Chinese Communist Party describes as a troublemaker, William Lai, has been elected Taiwan's president. Beijing responded by insisting that Taiwan is part of mainland China and repeated its demand for peaceful reunification, while never ruling out the use of force. How far is China prepared to go to secure what President Xi calls the historical inevitability of reunification? I'm Gavin Esner. This is not a drill. In the run-up to Taiwan's presidential and parliamentary election last weekend, the Chinese authorities suggested it was a choice between war and peace. In recent months, there has been some serious saber rattling too, with a highly visible increase in the Chinese naval presence in the waters near Taiwan. In Washington, the U.S. is a close ally of Taiwan. President Joe Biden has been careful to say that he does not support independence, while at the same time the U.S. State Department praised Taiwan's robust democratic system and electoral process. Pew Research polling in the United States shows that nine out of ten Americans consider China a strategic competitor or enemy, while two thirds of Chinese respondents view the United States in similarly unfavorable terms. We'll consider the wider implications of the Taiwan election in a moment. But first, for an update, I'm joined from the capital, Taipei, by the journalist William Yang. William, very good to talk to you. Um, Was this a surprise result in any way or very much as people predicted? So I think the election result is very much aligned with the pre-election predictions and also reflect uh, very accurately the pre-election opinion polls, which is that on the presidential side, the ruling Democratic Progressive Party in a three-way race still enjoys a little bit more of an edge when it comes to both its pitch of deepening the ties with like-minded democracies and uh, keeping a very mindful watch on China's uh, attempt to try to put pressure on Taiwan uh, compared to the other two political parties' pitch of restarting closer dialogue on exchanges with China. So I think uh, the result basically is a approval of the uh, foreign policy agenda that the Democratic Progressive Party's government has been embracing over the last eight years and at the same time showing the limit of other opposition political parties' attempt to try to win the support of more voters in Taiwan, especially this time when they are trying to drum up this narrative that the election is a choice between war and peace. Do you think that that kind of rhetoric from Beijing actually 
persuaded voters to vote for the DPP. In other words, it was completely counterproductive. I think in a way, yes, uh, especially among uh, voters who really embrace the idea that Taiwan is this vibrant democracy that enjoys a lot of the rights and freedom that, you know, unable to be obtained by the normal people in China. And they really value that. They really uh, think that this, it is what makes Taiwan a very unique place that can be separated from China. And, you know, I think this uh, saber-rattling and also fear-mongering type of rhetoric only worked among certain populations. Uh, in my pre-election interviews and with dozens of Taiwanese people, mostly the older generation people, you know, beyond the age of 50, would still think that it is possible and true that if the DPP wins a third term in office, it's uh, really going to further increase the possibility of China considering using military force as a way to uh, unify with Taiwan. But when you look at the younger generation, they would tell me that they've been hearing the fear-mongering type of rhetoric for decades, but they still don't really see China uh, adopting the move, even though they do feel that other type of pressure that China has been trying to impose on Taiwan has in, indeed increased. And in this particular election cycle, they do see more evidence and signs that China is trying to influence the Taiwan election's outcome and the public opinion in general. Can I ask you what almost seems like a naive question, but for an outsider, uh, when you talk to young people in Taiwan, do they say, I am Taiwanese? Do they say, I'm Chinese? Do they say, I'm both? I mean, how, how do people identify themselves if they do identify themselves? Right. So I think this is a very uh, important question that has uh, been shown in a lot of different surveys. Uh, one of them shows that about 80 9% of Taiwanese people identify themselves as Taiwanese, which they think it's a very uh, separate identity from the idea of Chinese. But, you know, if we look at this particular election, about 32% of the voters still prefer a closer tie with China, be it because of the economic, uh, I think, benefits that they actually personally enjoy from China, or be it just purely, I think, the uh, buying into the narrative that uh, embracing the vision that the ruling DPP has been providing to the Taiwanese public is only going to make Taiwan uh, more unsafe. I think uh, that group of people reflects the somewhat of a risk-averse type of mentality. But at the same time, some people are just more able to be scared by this type of fear-mongering rhetoric compared to the younger generation, which, in fact, when they hear fear-mongering uh, rhetorics like that, uh, it would only make them uh, feel more negative about China, if anything. Where do you see this going? I mean, this is the most difficult question, both from Beijing's point of view and also from uh, the new president of Taiwan. I mean, how close is he prepared to go and how close is Beijing prepared to let him, given the kind of things they've been saying about him? So I think we are still quite far from a real military conflict across the Taiwan Strait. I think purely a lot of the uh, factors will have to determine. Number one is 
the ongoing demographic crisis that we are witnessing in China, how you know uh, they can still maintain the size of the military uh, that they have right now is a big question. And at the same time, the economic slowdown uh, that has extended from the beginning of 2023 after China ended the three-year-long zero-COVID strategy and policy, uh, we are seeing that China continue to really struggle to bring its economic growth back to the pre-pandemic level. And a lot of the analysis are pointing to policy is actually not in favor of Beijing trying to launch any type of large-scale military invasion against Taiwan. And on the other side of the Taiwan Strait, I think uh, we are looking at while Taiwan under the DPP administration, they've adopted a total reversal of Taiwan's uh, defense policies and also trying to enhance Taiwan's defense budget, deepen col- collaboration with the U.S. on especially the training side. But, you know, at the same time, we are not really seeing uh, Taiwanese c- civil society taking concrete actions to really embrace that. And the Taiwanese population's general exposure to combat-related training is still very, very limited. Uh, And with the new makeup of the government, which is that the DPP controls the executive side of the government, but losing the majority on the legislative side, a lot of the prediction and also analysis are pointing to the national defense policy being a frontier where the opposition parties will try to gain up to slow down the I think, transition and reversal that the DPP has been trying to push since 2021. So I think on the Taiwanese front, there's also limited ability that Taiwan can really commit itself to any type of military conflict with China. And on the Chinese side, I think Xi Jinping is just also a much more calculated leader compared to Vladimir Putin in Russia. Uh, He is very closely watching how the public opinion in Taiwan is uh, I think, shaping up when it comes to uh, national defense policies and still prioritizing peaceful unification, peaceful means to conquer the minds and hearts of the Taiwanese public. And on the front, I think it's not necessarily working against them because I think this election shows that Taiwan's civil society is somewhat divided on the, if we look at it, only 40% of the Taiwanese voters supported the DPP in this particular election, and more than half of the Taiwanese voters, in fact, voted against them. So I think that's also a sign that Beijing is keeping a very close eye on when they are calculating their consideration and strategy towards Taiwan. And just a final thought on that point about Beijing and what they are thinking. I suppose you could say the historic triumph of the Chinese Communist Party since Deng Xiaoping has been to make China a richer country, a much richer country. And any kind of conflict, any conflict with Taiwan will be bad for business, just to put it in its most brutal terms, wouldn't it? Right. I mean, I think uh, prior to the election, Bloomberg uh, did this big piece calculating the potential global impact and consequence of a cross-strait war, and they're pointing to 10% of the global GDP. So that that is a warning sign that I think both Beijing, Taipei, but also countries around the world are keeping in mind uh, as we go into one of the biggest election years around the world. So I think the cross-strait conflict now kind of like being exacerbated by the outcome of this particular election in Taiwan is going to be in the global spotlight. It's not going to go away.
Thank you, William. William Yang there from the Taiwan capital, Taipei. The implications of this election, of course, go much further than Taiwan and the government in Beijing. The United States, Japan, Australia, the Philippines and other Pacific Rim countries are concerned at the prospect of some kind of serious tension and disruption in their backyard. For a wider perspective, I'm joined from Sydney by Richard McGregor of the Lowy Institute. It's an independent Australian think tank which conducts research on political, strategic and economic issues. Uh, Richard, I suppose the big question is what happens next? I mean, how rough do you think this could get? Well, it could get very dangerous. I mean, the truth is that the situation uh, in Taiwan is basically this week the same as it was last week. Taiwan has a government that uh, China deeply dislikes. Uh, it, it remains committed to regaining Taiwan by force if necessary. Uh, it has a military which really in many respects is almost ready to do that. Certainly uh, China has military superiority uh, around Taiwan and there's not much the US could do in the short term if uh, China were uh, to move. So it, it's very dangerous though, but that doesn't mean that um, uh, you know something is going to happen tomorrow, next week or even this year. Uh, that is entirely unpredictable, I think. I suppose there's the overt stuff and the covert stuff, beginning with the overt stuff. I mean, we could expect, I suppose, more military drills, you know, a few gunboats uh, approaching Taiwan waters, that kind of thing, even trade interference. I mean, are those the sort of things that we can at least expect, which would stop short of, of, of the worst option? That's certainly the case. There is overt and covert. But certainly the covert campaign against Taiwan over many years has not worked. Um, you know, every single major political party in Taiwan uh, basically cannot run on a theme of unification with uh, China. It's electoral suicide. So the covert campaign, the campaign to influence it's a policy uh, failure. So I think we really get to the overt campaign. And the overt campaign is designed to bring Taiwan to the table to negotiate. Now, certainly the PLA... Uh, they they strategize to invade Taiwan. They plan to do it. They exercise to do it. Uh, they uh, get their you know they basically build their military around that aim, but they don't want to do it. I mean, China's not stupid. Even before Ukraine, they understand that a, you know an invasion or something like that is potentially disastrous and costly, but and not just for them. Um, so they don't want to do that. So the overt campaign is designed to force Taiwan to the negotiating table. The trouble is that there is no constituency in Taiwan to do that. So how does China do that? Um, you know, trade sanctions haven't worked. Threats haven't worked. Everything that China has done has pushed Taiwan further away from it. So that's why it's dangerous, because there's not an easy solution in sight. This is going to sound like a really naive question, but surely one of the strategies that China could pursue would be to be nicer rather than be threatening. In other words, say, a bit of love wouldn't go amiss here. I mean, is that just completely out because it's not part of Xi's thinking? Well, I personally think that's the great failure of Chinese foreign policy. The Instead of threatening, they should persuade. Uh, and that doesn't apply just to Taiwan. It applies to Japan. If, you know, if China were nicer to Japan, America would, be, would have been finished in Asia you know, because there was a constituency in, in Japan to get much closer to China, you know, Asia should be run by Asians. Why not? Uh, the same goes for Taiwan in many respects, although obviously the situation is more complex because of the, um, you know, it 
the former civil war and the nature of the government in Taiwan and the like. But, you know, China, the Chinese political system doesn't have that kind of language for persuasion. Basically, what we are seeing the language in Taiwan is, is the language in China. And that's not the language of persuasion. It's the language of force, pressure, and essentially the need to recognize you are part of the motherland, whether you like it or not. And I suppose in that sense, the Hong Kong example is something that would turn off Taiwan even more. You know, this talk of uh, one country, two systems, and then we see the kind of repression that's been going on about protests, protests in Hong Kong. That would, if I were a Taiwanese voter, that would put me off quite significantly of the whole idea of reunification. Yes, that's one of the fascinating things about the election is the DPP, the Democratic Progressive Party, which won the election third time in a row, they are not popular. Uh, they've got the usual problem of the wear and tear factor of a government in power for a long time. You know, Taiwan had COVID problems. Taiwan had cost of living problems. They also weren't popular four years ago when they uh, uh, they won the election. And, and at that time, it was the Hong Kong example which really got them across the line because Xi Jinping said, one country, two systems supplies to Taiwan as it does to Hong Kong. And of course, one country, two systems was first thought up for Taiwan and then applied to Hong Kong uh, uh, way back when. The other interesting thing about that, of course, is that, you know, we'd often talk about a military solution. You know, China gets somebody, a comprador into the presidential palace within 30 days or whatever. But then how do they occupy Taiwan? It's not Hong Kong. Real political parties, real private companies, real NGOs, plus an extremely difficult terrain. So the, the Hong Kong example is off uh, in many different ways, but China has not been able to change its rhetoric in that respect. So maybe uh, we should look a little bit at the possibilities from Xi. I mean, you alluded to Ukraine a moment ago. That surely must put uh, the Beijing administration off some military adventure when they see how something that may have looked easy to Putin suddenly becomes pretty awful for Putin and for Russia. So has that, has that changed, do you think, Chinese thinking? Well, it, it's hard to know uh, exactly, but certainly the Ukraine example is not a good one for China. I mean, certainly the Chinese would think that their military is, you know, better, better prepared than Russia's. Um, and the like. But then again, the Chinese militaries had enormous problems with corruption, just as Russia's did. So would you want to test that? You know, Xi Jinping said, for example, that he wants the PLA to be ready, not to do it, ready by 2027 to take Taiwan. What if the PLA says we're not ready? Or what if she judges that they aren't ready? And given recent scandals at the very top of the PLA, it's quite possible uh, they'll make that judgment. It's another reason, by the way, that um, you know, an, an invasion is not uh, the most likely scenario. Um, let me give you, uh, a, you know, I think one of the most likely ones is that China basically does a blockade of Taiwan. They can do it very easily. And then overnight, they say Taiwan is part of China's custom zone. We will decide who comes and goes. And maybe they can enforce that. They'll say no interruption to Taiwan's semiconductor industry, no interruption to its electronics industry, we'll simply stamp everything that comes and goes. And I think we're moving towards a situation where China will be able to have absolute control on, on the waters around Taiwan. And I think you'll start to see, you're already seeing little moves to that. One of the most interesting is uh, China's legal declaration that the Taiwan Straits is not, are not international waters, but they're China's waters. 
So you might start to see commercial shipping, you know, the odd ship here or there, China demanding to board it and the like. Foreign navies being harassed even more as they go through the Taiwan Straits. So I think, you know, China probably has lots of different options up its sleeve to, it's an overt game, a pressure game, uh, which then could, you know, be sort of topped off with a sudden decision about, uh, you know, the custom zone or the like. Is there room for some optimism in the sense that uh, Xi can afford to play a long game? Uh, He seems to think that the United States, for example, is in a position of inevitable decline and it will happen eventually. Perhaps not when he's uh, in power, but it will happen. So he can afford not to do what Putin did, which is to rush into things. Well, he's certainly indicated he's not going to play that long a game. Um, you know, the, the China dream, so-called, you know, the deadline for that is 2049, the 100th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. Uh, and in theory, that's the, the you know, the, the aim, the, you know, the end date for unification. But many of the sort of KPIs, key performance indicators for the China dream have really been brought back to about 2035. And I think that's what she has got his eye on. Um, you know, I think in about 2035, he will be uh, you know, about Joe Biden's age at the end of his first term or something like that. So he figures he can probably stay in power to then. I think that's his aim. Uh, you know, he has said this is not a problem that can any longer be passed down generations. You know, this is not a legacy issue anymore. Um, this is something that he wants fixed uh, on his watch. And, you know, if you think about it, he all he needs to do is to get Taiwan to negotiate. If you think about the British and Hong Kong, the British and the Chinese concluded their uh, agreement, uh, declaration uh, for Hong Kong to return uh, to China. They concluded that in 1982. The actual return happened in 1997. So you can spin it out, but you just have to force and win on the principle from which, you know, Taiwan uh, can't row back. In other words, get Chinese officials in there and start to lock down the institutions. Of course, we forget that every country has its own internal politics, including China and within the Chinese Communist Party. So how much is that a driver of what is going on or what is likely to happen? It's certainly central to Taiwan, because I think regaining Taiwan is baked into the cake in the Communist Party. No Communist Party leader could step back from that. If they did, then I think they'd be in trouble. Another interesting factor, of course, is that we don't see much of this. Uh, you know, we have to be humble what we know about China uh, because it's a very opaque system. But it's absolutely true that she has a ton of enemies all waiting for him to stumble one way or another. You know, you know, he's put, he's destroyed the careers through his anti-corruption campaign of many powerful people and families, people on the more liberal side, you know, uh, relatively speaking, are uh, extremely angry at him for getting rid of term limits and making himself leader for life. Liberal economists are unhappy about the direction of economic policy, but none of these people can organise because she is in total command. But if you get, for example, a few years of subpar economic growth, you know, and he's done nothing on Taiwan, then people can start to beat him around the head with that. You know, internal politics are important, but nonetheless, I think the key internal driver is that it has to happen at some stage.
How is this being seen by the near neighbours of China and the not-so-near neighbours? So Australia, the Philippines, uh, New Zealand, uh, obviously the west coast of the United States, Japan itself. How do you think all this is being seen as unfolding? And has it brought those neighbours together? Yes, it's an interesting question. Look, we know the American interest in Taiwan, so I won't answer by talking about that. I think the most interesting country is Japan. Uh, you know, Japan is a former colonial overseer of Taiwan. Uh, you know, in South Korea, for example, the Japanese are still very much disliked. Uh, in Taiwan, it's the opposite. Not entirely, but, you know, a lot of positive sentiment about Japan in Taiwan, a lot of positive sentiment even about the parts of the colonial uh, period, you know, modernization in Taiwan. The Japanese as well also feel very sentimental about Taiwan as the conservative forces in Japan feel particularly strongly about it. And they say a Taiwan contingency is a Japan contingency. Now, in the case of Japan, they're up against, you know, a, a population which is not into fighting wars anymore. But, you know, Japan has a formidable navy. You know, the most outer reaches of Japan are are very, very close to Taiwan. So they're the most interesting country. You know, then the issue is whether Australia gets involved because it's such a close ally of the United States. But I think then we think about ASEAN, really, Southeast Asian nations and the Philippines, switched at the moment, um, pro-American, anti-China, uh, and, uh, f- you know, battling the Chinese daily in their shores uh, over territorial claims. And they're 40 minutes by flight from Taiwan. And so the Americans are bulking up there. So will the Philippines stick with that? And at the moment they are, that could change with changes of government. So they're the countries, I think, that uh, that really matter. And of course, the prospect of a Trump presidency, whatever we might discuss about Trump in the uh, wider context, that's not good news, presumably, for China. He seems to be much closer to Russia in many ways, but with China, he has said some pretty uh, nasty things in the past, at least. Yes, Trump, in many respects, you know, dislikes, doesn't care about allies, thinks they're freeloaders. He gave the South Koreans, the Japanese, an extremely hard time when he was in office, made them pour, uh, pay more money, didn't help them on trade and the like. But the truth is that Trump is totally unpredictable. He's totally relaxed about an extreme use of American military power. Uh, At first, the Chinese thought they had charmed him, flattered him, maybe bribed him and his family a little bit. But he put them on the back foot in the end um, and gained significant leverage. And I think the, the truth is, whether or not you like Trump, he changed China policy. And the Biden administration has built on that very professionally. So I guess the key with Trump is, you know, to make him think, is he winning or losing? And if he's made to look like he's losing on China, he could, you know, back Taiwan. You never know with him. And, you know, his chief of staff doesn't know what he's going to do. And so the Chinese will have no clue what he's going to do. He's a real wild card. That's very interesting. You reminded me of Nixon with uh, Russia, which is, in other words, to be seen to be unpredictable and keep them on the back foot. Maybe we shouldn't go down that rabbit hole too much. But a very senior uh, former British diplomat said to me, the problem for Xi is that he doesn't hear enough voices questioning what he does, or indeed any voices questioning what he does. And that was the problem with Putin, because he also didn't hear the same. That is a danger, isn't it? That Xi thinks he is invincible and that certain things are inevitable, and he'll make a mistake and overplay his hand. Yes, it's an interesting point. I wonder, though, um, 
you know, people say that she lives in an echo chamber, that he doesn't hear things that uh, he doesn't like, or, you know, people won't disagree with him. Maybe that's true. Um, I find it hard to think anybody can be in a real echo chamber with the internet these days. You can't really be cut off. He's got a daughter educated at Harvard. He's got a wife who's quite globally minded. You know, they can find anything they want on the internet. Um, Maybe they're scared to talk to him as well. I don't know. But I think the real issue is that she sees himself as a man of destiny. Uh, He thinks he's been given this great task for China to, you know, modernize, finally modernize the nation, carve out its space internationally. And of course, the cherry on top is Taiwan. So he won't be diverted from, from that by anything. And this is why it's, you know, you know, somebody said to me, what's the most dangerous time with Taiwan? And, and, and they said to me, oh, every year for the next 15 years, you know, which is not much of an answer, but might in fact be quite accurate. So something will happen sometime. There's absolutely no doubt about that, I think. Uh, uh, unless the uh, Western powers led by America, and only America can do this, deter China. But that is going to take a lot. I mean, the Chinese Navy is already much bigger than the American Navy. And the Chinese Navy has a mostly regional remit. America's is global. And they're pretty busy right now. You know, will somebody tell him fighting a war is, is, a, is a disaster? Maybe. But Taiwan is one area where the Chinese are going to do it one day, no matter what. As you've suggested, China's got its own internal problems. It's got an aging workforce. Uh, Nothing is perfect even in the Chinese economy either. So uh, how is this likely to develop? Because they've got plenty of other problems to be dealing with within the country rather than foreign adventures. Yeah, so one of the most interesting things I think about China is the current state of its economy. Ten years ago, people projected that China would not only surpass the US in absolute size, but would be much, much, become much, much bigger. Now, I think China will be big enough to challenge the US, but it's not going to have superiority. On top of that are all the problems, environmental, uh, demographics, you know, debt, uh, many areas of the country, are, you know, the old rust belt in the northeast and probably never going to sort of recover from the, the position they're in right now. So, you know, I think China would like people to think resistance is futile, we're going to win, get with the program, otherwise you're going to be left behind. Well, China's stumbling a bit now, and that's sort of taking the sheen off their propaganda in that respect. So it hasn't quite seeped in, I think, to ASEAN countries, which are basically fence-sitters on the issue of Taiwan. Let me finish this um, answer by putting it like this, though. These days, though, I think China is a predictable power. We know what they want. We know what they're doing. We know what they want about Taiwan. Uh, America is unpredictable. Now, 10 years ago, it was different. America was a predictable power. We thought of China as unpredictable. Now it's the opposite. And so the key to this in many respects might be the U.S. Does the U.S. care? Would the people in Arizona want to fight for Taiwan? Are they really going to commit to some a bigger fight as this? You know, the old saying at the cliche at the end of sports games, that the other side wanted it more. And it's certainly the case uh, with Taiwan and China. On that note, Richard, thank you very much. Richard McGregor of the Louis Institute in Sydney, Australia. And that's it for this edition of This Is Not A Drill. Thank you for listening.
This is Not A Drill was written and presented by Gavin Esler and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Our music's by Paul Hartnell, art by Jim Parra, and social media by Jess Harbin. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, executive producer Martin Boytosh, and This Is Not A Drill is a Podmasters production. <laughs>